Okay, here's the cinematic recipe. You've got a young Catherine Zeta-Jones, pre-dipping beneath lasers, of course, a very, very creepy, and I cannot emphasize this enough, very creepy, Tim Curry, playing a steward who says anachronistic things like, knock, knock, it's room service, and plans thefts of passengers' tiaras. Uh, Veteran actors like Eva Marie Saint and George C. Scott just wading through the muck of dialogue that sounds honestly computer-generated. And you add in some montages, nightmares, screaming, blurry apparitions, the whole deal. Oh, and lots and lots of wistful glances. What is this melodrama? This amazing, incredible melodrama? It's 1996's The Titanic miniseries, of course. My guess rebranded with the the in front of it after James Cameron's Titanic blew it out of the literal and proverbial water just one year later. I'm L.A. Beatles, and welcome to Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast. This is the first in an extra set of mini episodes called Titanic on Film. This one is insane, you guys. So buckle in. So first off, I really want to thank everybody who's been listening. I am continually amazed to see the reach of the pod so far. I'm really actually quite humbled by it. And it's also been so much fun to interact with some of you on Instagram. So definitely find me there if you want. I post about new episodes, of course, but I also post some of the books that I'm reading, recommendations I have for other podcasts, and polls about which movies in terms of this little series to cover moving forward. I realized through the course of my research that I'd spent so much time on documentaries uh, in terms of film that I had really neglected a lot that as far as narrative fictional media interpretations, I'd seen precious few of them aside from A Night to Remember and 1997's Titanic. So I ran a poll for this week, and it was between this 96 miniseries and the 1993 Hollywood film, which, to note, my dad is really excited for me to finally watch trying to convince him to watch it alongside of me. The two movies came so close in the poll that I decided to just do both. This will be the first one of the two, but the 53 one will probably be next in a couple of weeks. I had never seen this miniseries, but let's get the basics out of the way first. So it was an American two-part television miniseries. It aired on CBS on November 17th and November 19th, 1996. So it's just two parts, one right after the other. This is 1990s peak TV era, right? Peak miniseries era, still very much a monoculture era. Families are sitting down to watch these big event series or movies 
on network TV. And for that reason, I'm incredibly shocked by one scene that's included in this miniseries, but I'll, I'll get to that later. It was directed by a man named Robert Lieberman, who has mostly directed TV, but who was also incidentally married to one of the miniseries stars, Mary Lou Henner of Taxi fame, and she plays the unsinkable Molly Brown with this thick Western cowboy accent that I spent the entire time unable to process properly. I, I couldn't I couldn't get over it. As I mentioned in the intro, it's got this ensemble cast that is sort of odd, and some of them are actually very good actors, but together it just doesn't work. So the movie follows three main storylines, and I'll go through those first. And to be clear, guys, I'm going I'm going to spoil this movie. If you want to watch the movie before you hear anything else, please go watch it. It's on Tubi. But just be warned, spoilers ahead. So it opens with this young woman named Alice Cleaver having a horrible nightmare about drowning. And you find out pretty quickly that she is a misbegotten soul of sorts. Something is up with her. She interviews for a position of a nanny in the following scene with the Allison family, who are a real family that was on board Titanic. Keep that in mind. And then inexplicably, this family hires her on the spot, even though she's obviously nearly mute from her own anxiety and depression. She's non-expressive and seems to barely be able to hold their baby, whose name is Trevor, properly. Like the daughter, Lorraine, who I guess is maybe supposed to be about four, she has to tell her, Miss Alice, hold the baby's head. Anyway. So one storyline is this mysterious new nanny boarding with this upper-crust, first-class family, the Allisons. The second storyline is some kind of weird pre-Jack Dawson, reverse Jack Dawson thing. This street urchin named Jamie Purse is seen at the beginning of the film, or a miniseries. I don't know which one to call it. It really watched like a movie, So I'm probably just going to say movie from here on out. Uh, But at the beginning, we see this Jamie Purse fellow robbing a drunk man of his Titanic ticket. Jamie then proceeds to spend half the movie impersonating that man he robbed, who was supposed to be on board. But he's caught by Tim Curry, who is in the pub the night that all this went down, the stealing of the ticket. So he knows who he is. Curry entangles this ruffian in a plot to steal first-class family's jewels at the end of the voyage. Curry's character exists only seemingly in this storyline, really, lurking around to cause problems and watching creepily along as Jamie falls in love with an immigrant who is a Christian missionary headed to America, a woman named Asa. think it's pronounced Asa. I mean, the pronunciation was, I couldn't quite tell in the movie. And then last but not least, we have Zeta Jones, and she's a first-class passenger named Isabella Paradine, who we learn has been in England taking care of the affairs of her recently deceased aunt. But she's got a husband and a daughter back in America who she's returning to. She boards, and okay, here we go, finds out immediately that a man named Wynne Park, 
who's played by Peter Gallagher. And I have to say, I best know Peter Gallagher as the sleeping brother in the movie While You Were Sleeping. And I can never get that out of my head when I see him in anything else. So he has the stateroom she discovers right near his. And it becomes obvious immediately that they've been involved before. They have some sort of secret past. There's a lot of secret past going on here. You've got George C. Scott playing a very reverent version of Captain Smith, not the quiet one that we see in other adaptations of the events. In this one, he's always puffing his chest out and espousing words of wisdom. You've got Eva Marie Saint serving as, my guess, just some kind of catch-all amalgam of a character representing what is supposed to be a kind of a snooty first-class woman. The ones that had the lap dogs, the ones that, you know, wore the huge hats with the feathers on them. And I mean, from my understanding, these women actually did exist. There are a couple of lap dogs that survived the Titanic, believe it or not. Wait for it. This was completely unbeknownst to me. But this actually was the perfect movie and the perfect episode to do following last week's episode. Because in this You've got a mustachioed Bruce Ismay looking incredibly handsome and cast as an absolute villain. One of the opening scenes on board, he's actually leading a group of press around the ship before it sails, which wouldn't have happened, number one, and also probably would not have been in Ismay's character. As we learned last week, he was shy and he loathed the press. But who knows for sure, right? And they ask him about the lifeboats in this mini press conference on board. And here's what I'll tell you. I think the person or likely people who wrote this screenplay, I didn't even look. I need to go look. There may just be one person credited, and I apologize if that's the case. But whoever wrote this screenplay must have read a copy of the U.S. Senate hearing interviews and then just cut and pasted the dialogue. Ismay says very plainly that the lifeboats are, quote, up to regulation. And it's this very foreboding scene that seems to lay out a lot of what was uncovered during the U.S. Senate hearings and some of his language. Captain Smith in this scene is standing right next to him, going on and on about his eventless career, which we also know to be untrue because he'd had two accidents on the Olympic right before this. But seriously, Ismay is all through this thing, turned out in fine suits, that part's right, running around the ship undermining this noble captain. It's good versus evil, old versus modern, and the captain who says he's retiring after this illustrious career at sea is advocating for a slow and steady wins the race kind of deal. There's this dramatic scene where Ismay goes down to the boiler room, something that no matter where you stand on the Ismay debate, we know likely did not happen. But in the scene, he's ordering firemen around as if he's the captain of the ship. So my husband came into the room while I was watching some of it and saw one shot of the ship at night sailing. And he said, oh, that's pretty good for 1996. But then I showed him another clip of it moving through the water, and he replied, oh no. I mean, this was TV money, 
versus movie money. James Cameron was actually in production as this movie came out. Kate and Leo were in the water in Rosarito, Mexico, filming all those iconic scenes as this thing was airing. But he had $200 million of studio money, so I get it. But the ship here looks like a painting that was animated, just like if you panned a camera over some paintings and ran it through a filter. I can forgive it with no special effects budget, but the palette is so dark overall. And we'll talk about this more when I do the episodes on the 97 film. Yes, I said plural. Who knows? It might be a five-parter. God help me. But... Cameron has said it was really important to get the lighting on the feel of the color of his film right, a brightness to the ship, light, joyful color palette to show the actual vibrancy of Titanic. And I see why he needed to say that, because here, this one is all wood paneling and dark lighting and shadows and this sense of evil even before the ship hits the iceberg. And guys, there are so many inaccuracies with how this ship looks, I couldn't even list all of them. Some of you out there who are experts on the interior, exterior, you will probably catch way more than I even did. So one is that the interior first class areas are very dark mahogany color. I understand them as white. At one point, Molly Brown is depicted as saddling up to a bar with J.J. Astor. Now, In real life, they actually were good friends. Uh, Margaret Brown had been actually on part of JJ and Madeline Astor's honeymoon, accompanying them uh, in travels in Europe prior to Titanic. So weirdly, that part is true. But there was no bar in the dining area or the smoking room. It seems like it might be the smoking room. Women weren't allowed in the smoking room. So that one just, that one got me. I don't know, just Molly Brown saddling up with JJ and having a drink. There are mistakes with the dining hall, where it was located. The movie says it's on A deck. It was actually on D deck. It The Titanic did not have this two-story tea room with revolving doors that's in this movie. They omitted the glass dome over the grand staircase There is a shot of a steerage bathroom that has very modern-looking shower stalls. And I have two thoughts. One, this is inaccurate because as many other podcasts on Titanic recently have pointed out, and it is true, there were only two bathtubs in steerage for all of the third-class passengers. And truly, this seems pretty rough. I have read where some historians claim this isn't quite as rough as you'd imagine because the need wasn't there, that third-class passengers at this time in history wouldn't have traditionally wanted to use bathtubs in this situation on, on you know, at sea. But I don't know. Two, for the hundreds of third-class passengers on board, many of whom probably wanted to be clean, I, I don't know. It does seem pretty rough to me, but I can't make a definitive statement to that effect. So second, this shower stall that's depicted in the steerage area is used as a setting for a really, really gratuitous rape scene that I am very shocked was on network television and honestly is so triggering that I would caution anybody who does feel as though that sort of scene 
something they can't watch on screen, I would actually caution them to not watch the movie because of it. It's really, really rough, very strange, and I wish I hadn't seen it. Same with my husband. He happened to be in the room at the time. So lots of inaccuracies, and again, some of some of which I can forgive, possibly lack of special effects budget, lack of research budget in some cases. I will say that on in some of the scenes with just decks where passengers are walking up and down decks, pretty good. Looks okay as a set piece. Not bad. When it's a smaller scale set, it looks pretty good. But while we're on the comparison subject, good Lord, I need to say, many people insult Cameron's dialogue in the 97 movie because it's got this simplistic sort of storytelling quality. But those people should watch this. So here are a few gems from just the 30 minute, the first 30 minutes or so. Quote, can you believe it? I'll be on the same boat as John Jacob Astor. At one point, it's better that you don't have a heart. And that's a line in between the two going on in the steerage romance. Molly Brown, my favorite, yelling, quote, to hell with polite society. And also this, Jim, here's to a rip-roaring maiden voyage to us and the Titanic. And while we're on the subject of Molly as well, really in contrast to her portrayal here as this inappropriate, loud-mouthed hillbilly, she was actually, and many of you already know this, she was a really, really smart, well-mannered, polite, learned, studied social activist, political activist. Like I mentioned before, in reality, she was actually really good friends with someone like J.J. Astor. She ran and was accepted in society quite a bit. She was also much older than is portrayed in this film. And she also never really went by the name Molly. She was known as Margaret Brown, occasionally Maggie But this is an entire thread to unravel, and there will definitely be an episode on Margaret Brown. She is an amazing figure, and I cannot wait to talk about her. It's going to require a lot of research, and I want to do the work correctly. So that episode will probably be quite a bit in the future. Now, there is one really, really accurate scene that this movie gets right, which is And the dialogue's clunky, but there is a scene where the third-class passenger, Jamie, is trying to go through the gates to first class because he's just curious about what first class is like. He wants to go up there. And a steward informs him, no, of course you can't come in here. The gates are locked. I'm paraphrasing here, obviously. The gates are locked, and Jamie asks why. And the steward says, because of the fear of infectious diseases, it's a quarantine protocol can't mix the classes. This is true. Third class was considered a risk for infectious diseases. So there was a full-on quarantine that went in between third class and the rest of the ship. There was no back and forth, which as much as you know I love the 97 movie and it is almost, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I mean, in reality, Jack Dawson would have never made it to first class. I personally am willing to overlook it that movie. (laughs) I'm sure a lot of you are as well. Guys, there's so much to unpack. Uh, Captain Smith at one point is made to appear as a matchmaker to someone's granddaughter. 
There are slurs against ethnicities, and they're not even masked as of that period. They seem kind of real. It's weird. In 1996, there's this whole religious undertone because the immigrant that Jamie is in love with has sort of sworn off anything earthly and tries to save him from his evil ways through her innocence, which, again, is symbolically taken away from her in that awful scene with Tim Curry's character. The savior narrative is really common in film adaptations. I'm genuinely curious what you guys think about this too. So please always send feedback when I review a film and talk about it. I want to hear what you think too. So of course the savior narrative is a storytelling trope to begin with. But some of the storylines here don't differ that much from the ones in Cameron's movie, for example. When Park is kind of like Isabella's secreted away former lover, we find out, and she had to turn down his offer back in the day in favor of a man who had more money, who her parents liked better. So imagine if Rose had actually married Cal, but then popped back up 10 years later in tails and with a cigar in his mouth, and he made good. I think, to side note, I think a few fan fictions over the years have probably sailed those exact narrative waters, I would have to imagine. And of course, there's the class and caste system issues, and those seem inherent in the Titanic tale. You've got the misfit steerage Jamie here stealing a tuxedo, another Jack Dawson moment, if you will, but in a much less appealing way, to rub elbows with Astor. In fact, he literally steals J.J. Astor's wallet from his pocket. I don't know, guys. Would J.J. Astor have just hung out with this dude at the bar? There, Obviously, there wasn't even a bar on the real Titanic, as I mentioned. There are so many scenes here that actually look and on paper seem a lot like the ones in the 97 film and other films of Titanic. But that's not shocking since they're about the same event of which we only have a certain number of sources. It's just unbelievable the difference, a scene like the men waking up to chaos and water coming in in steerage, or water rushing over decks, or two characters looking at the stars in the night sky. But those same scenes in the hand of a world-class director is all the difference in a whole world of difference, essentially, is what I'm trying to say. And notably, both films, the 96 and the 97, have the scene where Officer Murdoch commits suicide. And that was that one was actually shocking to me because I had heard a lot about Jim Cameron taking flack for including that scene because there is absolutely no evidence that it was Murdoch that took his own life on board that ship. And he had taken a lot of flack and I, I didn't know that it was included in the 96 film as well or miniseries as well. So that's interesting. So I've saved a big historical reveal for the end here. Do you remember the family, the Allisons, that boards with this creepy nanny? Well, they were actually a real family. They were Canadian, though. They were not American. And they were bound for Montreal. They came on at Southampton with four servants, not just the one. They came on with a maid named Sarah, the nurse, Alice, a cook named Mildred, and a butler named George. Their names were Hudson and Bess the husband and wife, and remember the kids were Trevor the baby and Lorraine the little girl. They were a well-known first-class family on board this ship. There's a story that at dinner on April 14th, this would be the night that the ship went down, 
they actually brought Lorraine, the little girl, to the dining room so that she could see it. They come, they pop up in a lot of memoirs when first class passengers are just remembering life aboard the ship. In the plot here, remember the Allisons are on board with this nanny they've just hired. And in the course of the movie, a stewardess recognizes her from newspapers as a woman named Alice Mary Cleaver, who was infamous for murdering her own infant. And here is where the storytelling of a film and history and real life events collide in a weird way. So the Allisons were on board with a nanny named Alice. And Alice, the nanny in real life, she did get off the boat with the baby Trevor. She did. But she was not Alice Mary Cleaver. She was Alice Catherine Cleaver. And the real story is very sad. We don't have, we don't necessarily have the whole truth, but the real story seems to go like this, that the father did go up to see, and this is partly depicted in the movie, that the father, Hudson, goes up on the decks to figure out what's going on. When he comes back down, Alice has disappeared with the baby. In the movie, it's portrayed as Alice has had these horrible nightmares. She's gone a little crazy. She desperately takes the baby and runs up to a lifeboat and is sort of reenacting something in terms of her own life. Like she, you know, murdered her baby. She's going to save this baby and redeem herself. And she's almost portrayed as being in a psychosis, really, to be honest. But in real life, what happened is that Alice... The nanny, nurse is another word for her that the historians use. She wanted to get the baby in a lifeboat, most likely had planned to meet up with other members of their group, but this group got separated. And at one point, the mom, Bess, and the daughter, Lorraine, were almost put into a lifeboat. But as accounts go, the mom chose not to get in it. She couldn't bear to leave the ship, not knowing where her baby was. Alice, the real Alice, most likely was truly trying to just save this baby in the middle of all of this chaos. We don't have any real proof as to the Allisons ever knowing that their baby made it safely on the lifeboat, but most historians agree it wasn't necessarily an act of malice on the part of the real Alice. I know this is confusing, but I do mention it in terms of I don't know. To me as a historian, it's very interesting to see how narratives combine over the years that the existence of this woman named Alice Cleaver, who had a very similar name to another Alice Cleaver in history that committed a heinous crime, and how the two Alices get combined in the lore of the Titanic story, so much so that it makes it into a CBS miniseries. It's just, it's interesting to me. So if I went over all of the historical inaccuracies in this film, this wouldn't be a mini episode anymore. So I will spare you. A couple of others that I wanted to mention, though. When Captain Smith comes in to talk to the wireless operators, he calls CQD come quickly distress. This is not correct. And judging by a lot of comments online, maybe somewhat laughable to be interpreted that way. The use of CQD, part of the CQ actually comes from a French word, um, meaning security. And 
I did a little cursory research to get that information. The Marconi, the history of the Marconi Gram and the Marconi operators on board, that is going to be an episode as well that will require a lot of research. I actually have some friends that are going to help sit down and help me learn a little bit about some of the technical side of that so that I can get a better handle. So that one will be coming down the line as well. But that was a one that seemed like a lot of people online found funny, the CQD mess up. Uh, the Titanic was not booked solid. As the movie says, there's a steward that goes on and on about it being full up. But the first and second class cabins were actually less than half full. Really, the last thing I have to mention is just that I don't even know where to put this in the context of an outline for this episode. But there is this big reveal of paternity at the end where we find out that Isabella's daughter back in America is actually Wynn Park's daughter from way back when they were together before. And the next film that I am going to review in this little series is the 1953 Hollywood Titanic, which I haven't seen, but from what I've heard, also includes a storyline about paternity and discovering paternity in the throes of the sinking. That's interesting. I can't wait to unpack that a little bit more. So, there we go. I will say, to this film's credit, I know I have thrown it against a wall and thrown spaghetti sauce at it. To the film's credit, the last scenes in it, with the sinking, the crying, the screams, people crowded on deck, those last horrible moments of the sinking... The film actually does a really good job of evoking kind of the chaotic emotion. I mean, I found myself really bothered by it, even more so than those final scenes in the 97 movie. It was, this one was very claustrophobic and very dark in those images, children crying, babies crying. So the end is kind of weirdly effective in terms of the actual sinking to get across that anguish. So I will definitely give it credit for that. And then lastly, one scene that struck me as plausible was an Ismay scene at the end. And I think it's very fitting to leave you here at an Ismay scene since the prior week's episode was this big deep dive into Ismay. And thank you for listening, by the way. But there's this scene when he comes on the Carpathia and the captain of the Carpathia is trying to talk to him. And he keeps saying, I'm Ismay, I'm Ismay. And he's trying to convey that he survived and that he is Bruce Ismay and here he is on the Carpathia, but he is just stunned and sad and does seem to be having this moment of realization of the sinking in, pardon the pun, of what has happened. And to me, that seemed like it could actually be realistic. The other parts of the Ismay story in this movie, not realistic at all. But in terms of how he might have looked and sounded when he boarded the Carpathia, just sad and under the weight of what had just happened and in shock, it seemed it seemed possible. All right. Have you seen this movie? If so, please comment on Instagram or email me at unsinkablepod at gmail.com. And the Instagram handle is unsinkablepod too. Please let me know. Let me know what you think about little episodes like this. I know it's strange to call a 30-something minute episode small, but you know me well enough now to know that's true. But definitely let me know what you think. Let me know what other films that you'd like me to cover. There are so many. Again, just thank you for listening. That simple act of you listening is so amazing. 
If you do happen to listen on Apple Podcasts and you enjoy the pod, please consider rating and reviewing. That would be awesome. Other than that, I will just plan to see you next week when we are back to a regular episode. And that one, like I mentioned before, is on the food and drinks aboard Titanic. I actually found out I'm going to be having my first guest on the pod. Uh, After I record this, I'm actually going right back into interview prep. I'm really excited. It's an amazing guest. Can't wait for you to hear. Can't wait for that episode to take its full shape. I have already tried some of the Edwardian era cocktails. I have a lot to report on. My husband is helping me with that task. It's hard work, but someone's got to do it. So I will see you then. Bye.